a Podcast One production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to AgriMinders. Now, the distance between farms and urban consumers has always been an issue in Australia. Almost 70% of Australians live in capital cities, but at the same time, they demand high-quality, fresh produce all year round from our regions. Farmers must transport produce right across great distances in Australia to meet this demand in the urban centres. So one solution that addresses both of these problems is peri-urban agriculture, And this is where food is produced on the edges of the capital cities. Areas around our capital cities used to be littered with market gardens and horticultural farms. But as the cities sprawl out further and lifestyle blocks grow in demand, agricultural land near the capital cities has become either unavailable or prohibitively expensive. Therefore, imagination is now required to supplement this peri-urban agriculture. Happily, technology has created significant advances in hydroponics and aquaponics, and that's culminated in a a farm-in-a-box type system, which brings food closer to consumers. To explore the feasibility of peri-urban agriculture, today I'm talking to our agriminder, Andrew Bodlovich. Now, Andrew is the inventor of the EcoCity Farm, which is a a farm-in-a-box where fish and vegetables can be produced right next to the shop where they're sold. I first came across the EcoCity Farm on the New Inventors series on the ABC in 2007, where I was one of the judges that was introduced to this concept. Now, it was a very early idea then and seemed to be way out. But today, maybe not so much. Since then, Andrew has developed this idea into Blue Farms, which takes the original idea of the EcoCity Farm to a much larger scale. So welcome to AgriMinders, Andrew. Thanks very much, Chris, and great to talk to you again after all these years. Absolutely. So, Andrew, just tell me how important is peri-urban agriculture in Australia and how important is it perceived to be by urban consumers? Well, I think peri-urban and urban agriculture can be very important in in the overall mix of food production um, for a number of reasons. There are sustainability reasons. Um, if we can grow our food closer to where it's consumed, obviously that's a, that's a reduction in, in food miles, in transport uh, costs and ecological costs. I think that consumers more and more demand very uh, fresh produce. They, they realise the importance of particularly, um, um, you, you know, you, you your fresh vegetables, your leafy greens and herbs and all that sort of thing and and, um, salad-type vegetables um, that don't travel as well and, and of course, cost a lot in in cold-chain transport, you know, consumers really appreciate if if that produce can come from their local region. But why why do they appreciate? I mean, the cost benefits, of course, travel largely to the producers and I I get that. But, you know, is the ecology of feeling that there is sort of natural food production occurring near the city, is that important to urban consumers or is that just go straight through to the keeper? I think it's really important. I know when Hogan Gleeson, my my co-inventor, and I um, first set up a farm in Lismore, a little city farm um, on the outskirts of Lismore in northern New South Wales. This is back in the the mid-90s now. Um, and we, we certified as organic. It was a, a little one-acre farm um, in the suburbs. 
And uh, we didn't even advertise that farm. We, we just put the word around and we soon had 120 uh, very, uh, very enthusiastic and happy customers there that would come into what they felt was their farm um, every week and they'd pick up their box of veggies or, or we'd deliver. It was one of the, the early uh, home box delivery systems in Australia. Uh, and so they, they really felt like they were part of their food production, even though they didn't have to do the, the day-to-day work, although some, some people did come in and vol- volunteer on occasions. So yes, it, there's, there, are an emotional, uh, there are emotional aspects to it as well that are very important. Um, as well as the you know some cold hard um, economic and environmental advantages. So Andrew, where did the idea for Eco City Farm come from, and what was your original dream? It's a fairly big question, to be honest, Chris. You know, sometimes people think an inventor or an innovator wakes up in the middle of the night and has an idea and hops up and builds a prototype and rings the new inventors and asks if they could come on the show. And it doesn't usually happen that way. It was really at least a 15-year period, uh, possibly more, um, of, a, I guess, a series of, looking back now, really serendipitous uh, meetings with some pretty remarkable people that, I guess, shaped up uh, my ideas around farming. And, and I know that Hogan went along a similar um, sort of path of uh, of developing his ideas. What were the problems that you were trying to overcome and then had to overcome before it became a viable something that you could present to the public? Well, Hogan and I both had a, a strong interest in sustainability. Both of us had had exposure to some experiences around traditional farming systems. And when I say traditional systems, uh, I'm really talking about ancient traditional farming systems. I can give you an example there of a, a system that I came to learn about uh, in Hawaii. Um, I was uh, on the little island there called Molokai in Hawaii uh, many years ago and I was, I was walking along a beach and there was a, 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 an, an elder, an old chap, old Hawaiian chap up ahead of me on the beach and uh, he was the only other person on the beach and he was staggering down towards the water carrying this huge rock, almost boulder you'd have to call it, and he, he waded out into the sea, chest deep in water, and placed this boulder up on this old sort of ancient looking rock wall out in the sea that was forming a, a crescent-shaped bay. And I was fascinated by what was going on. He waded back ashore and I went up and introduced myself. And I said, what, what are you doing? And he said, look, I'm an, I'm an elder and I'm repairing an ancient Hawaiian fish farm. He then spent the next several hours um, explaining to me how this worked, and he he turned around and pointed up to the the mountain um, up above us um, on this beach, and he said uh, the traditional system was called mountain to sea agriculture, and so up the very top of the mountain they would grow uh, medicinal herbs and the plants that would thrive in that sort of more harsh environment, and then part way down the mountain uh, they'd have tree crops and, and then a little bit further down, bananas and papaya. Uh, coming down onto the flats, they would have um, taro and, uh, and sweet potato and pigs. And, and when it rained, nutrients would roll down from, from, would flush down from one level to the next. And eventually any excess nutrients would go into this crescent-shaped fish farm and at the high tide, they'd take sluice gates out of this wall and let little fish in there from the sea. And the nutrients going into this farm would then grow algae, which would feed the, 
the herbivorous fish and set up a food chain with the omnivore fish and, and so, forth, so forth, he was telling me about this remarkable integrated system that sustained itself literally for centuries. What a great story. And so you then took that forward and turned it into a farm in a box, if, if, if that's not oversimplifying it. You brought it the new inventors in 2007. Um, what's happened since then? My understanding is a few years ago, you built a major operation with the University of Sydney out at their farms at Cobbity. What happened between new inventors and that operation? Well, the, the new inventors did bring quite a lot of interest, not just from Australia, but we had inquiries really from right around the world, which was fantastic. That enabled us to raise a little bit of capital uh, to go from our very small prototype that we'd taken onto the new inventors program and uh, and develop a semi-commercial scale prototype. And then around about 2009, uh, we were ready to take the next step into commercialization. And we were able to uh, form a joint venture to commercialize the technology. And the government, uh, the federal government was uh, uh, very forthcoming in supporting that process. They put in quite a lot of money to assist that as well. Uh, and we built a commercial scale blue farm um, at Cobbity on University of Sydney land. Was there a kind of a turning point which suddenly made this, the, the, the economy of scale work that didn't work before, but, you know, that caused that to be built? And is there another turning point which is going to see a further expansion? The turning point really happened earlier. It just it took time to uh, took time to get to all of this. But when when I went back to university to do my degree in uh, or master's degree in sustainable agriculture, um, I really wanted to come up with a set of principles on how we could develop uh, both profitable and and sustainable ecologically sustainable forms of urban agriculture. I'd been studying the, the traditional systems, as I pointed out. The problem with those systems is you can't just reproduce them today and make a profit. They're, they're terrific systems in terms of sustainability. And, and of course, they were economically sustainable in, in their context, but you can't just reproduce those systems in the context today. So that's when I started looking at uh, the other extreme of, of agriculture, which is the very high-tech um, automation you know, high-tech recirculating aquaculture systems, protected cropping systems, uh, climate management. And really, with Hogan's input, we were trying to, I guess, facilitate a, a sort of a, a managed collision between the, the, the sustainability of, of these ancient sustainable systems and the, the incredible efficiency of the, the modern high-tech agriculture, which is terrific, but often struggles uh, in terms of its sustainability. So we're trying to retain the advantages of both these, I guess, incompatible approaches to agriculture and, and find a, a marriage of convenience between the two. To, to look at it, you would say it looks like a high-tech facility, but of course, built into it uh, are really the principles that uh, we developed and learnt from these more traditional farming systems. Um, so the microbiology, for example, um, was a key to to being able to produce products there and some of the other qualities and, 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 and you know, sustainability aspects that we're able to build into that. So, Andrew, as I remember the uh, EcoCity farm system, you were growing fish in a tank and they, of course, were eating material, producing nutrients in the water. 
those nutrients then supplied the ingredients for growing the plants in a hydroponic system next door. What, what's the difference then um, with the blue farm process that you've just described? I would call that original EcoCity farm uh, an aquaponic system. So that was a system where we grew fish in fish tanks and then the nutrients from the fish were feeding plants and using up the nutrients and, and therefore cleaning the water and creating a synergy between the fish and the plants. Hogan and I both came, and particularly Hogan came from a, an organic farming background, and we really could see a, a niche for large-scale, uh, very reliable, very efficient production of certified organic produce. And to, to grow organically, it's essential in Australia anyway, it's a bit different in the US, but in Australia, uh, one of the keys for organic agriculture is that unlike, say, hydroponics or standard aquaponics, the plants grow in a, in a, a living soil. Um, and so Hogan developed a, um, a very microbially rich uh, compost-based um, soil media um, that we could grow the plants in. And then we could still utilise those waste streams coming from the, the fish in the aquaculture system um, after they'd gone through various composting and biological processes uh, to make them suitable um, as, as an input. Um, but in that sort of case, the, the liquid nutrients are feeding the soil, uh, the compost-based soil, and, and, and then the compost soil is feeding the plant. So it's, it's quite, quite different to a hydroponic approach. So why did you pick fish and veggies? To me, that seemed to so foresight. I mean, fish farming is not always as ecologically sound as what people think it is, particularly when they're using other fish to feed the fish, you know, like pilchards and things. And quite often hydroponics is not necessarily as free of, of, um, uh, of agents that people would not want in their food than what they would think about. Yet somehow by bringing those two together, you've actually created an all-round product which fits the bill for the consumer. How, how do you, what do you think is the key to that marriage? Well, it's, it's in a sense a happy accident of nature and it, it's certainly not something that Hogan and I came up with. As I said, the, the Hawaiians uh, had been doing that sort of integration literally for centuries. So there's, there's a happy accident in that what comes out of fish production as a waste stream is not exactly what plants require as inputs, but it's in the ballpark. Now, if you can insert some good biology and some microbiology uh, between the fish outputs and the plant inputs, which is really what a, a blue farm does, then you can you can match up those two so that the waste from one um, becomes the, the perfect input for the other. The result of that is you have nothing go, going to waste. Every nutrient, every litre of water in the system can be converted into a saleable product. And what's better, veggies or herbs? They're all good, just depends on the market. So certainly with this type of uh, blue farming system, it's possible to grow a range of different fish. We've tried several varieties, for example, in a farm that we uh, recently built in China. You can grow fruiting crops, so your tomatoes, um, your peppers, zucchinis and, and the like. Um, and you can grow all of your leafy greens and even other specialty crops. So it's quite a diversity that you can grow. And what about aquaponically produced fish compared to conventionally produced fish? You know, what advantages they offered the consumer? 
Well, I think the fish themselves would be similar out of either system, but the problem with a lot of our aquaculture systems, and, and we, we need aquaculture systems because we can't just keep harvesting the oceans the way we have, but by its nature, uh, the fish are, are consuming um, a feed, they're excreting the waste, and that waste has to go somewhere. Now, if you don't have a secondary use for those nutrients, then you have uh, a fish that's, for all intents and purposes, exactly the same, except that it's been produced in an unsustainable way. Unsustainable in what way, Andrew? Well, because if, if, you're, putting, if you're putting waste water containing, containing a lot of nutrients out into the environment, then the environment has to somehow cope with that. When we built Cobbity, um, there had been no freshwater aquacultures licensed in New South Wales for some time, for, for several years, uh, because of the issues around effluent. Uh, whereas once we introduced the, the uh, concept to, um, to fisheries uh, in New South Wales there, um, where the waste stream was actually being utilised for a secondary purpose in, in a self-contained cycle, they leapt at that and, and the, uh, the aquaculture licence was through very, very quickly. What about the costs of setting this up, Andrew? If you're if you're going to set up, you know, a fish farm or a or a hydroponic vegetable farm versus setting up, you know, a, a blue farming or an eco city farming type system, how do the capital costs and the costs of production compare? The capex essentially is equivalent to a similar hydroponic type setup plus a recirculation aquaculture system. So it's it's actually similar capex to those competing systems. Um, but the difference is that you're turning out product that's certified organic, that gives the potential for improved um, prices and also preferred supplier status with the major uh, retailers um, because they, they love to take up contracts with suppliers that can tick all of those sustainability boxes because they know they can pass that marketing story on to their customers. Now, when you designed the operation at Cobbity, what was the attitude of the supermarkets to that? And and how do you think that they make people aware that, uh, in fact, this is coming from a peri-urban agriculture type operation? Well, I think you, you have to marry up the, the trends in production and, and the trends in, in uh, consumer consumption. If you look at what we've designed there, Three of the fast, in fact, the three fastest growing growing areas of production in agriculture are aquacu- uh, fish production, aquaculture, certified organic, and protected cropping. They're the three fastest growing subsectors, and really, that's uh, driven by a few factors. People want to eat more fish. Uh, people want to eat healthier food, which brings in the organic side of it. Um, the supermarkets want to buy very consistently available products. So products that come out of protected cropping systems um, can really be uh, look at the same and be available 365 days a year. Uh, so that really suits the, uh, the supermarkets. I think what we're able to achieve there not only suited the, the, uh, the buying preferences of the supermarkets, it's really feeding into um, the main consumer trends that are happening at the moment as well. So if they were marketing this, would they be selling the fact that it's made nearby 
would they or number one, or would they be selling the fact that's organic and there's some sort of perceived health advantage on that, real or not real in Australia? Or how would they be actually, you know, going out to the market and saying, yes, well, that's why we spend all this money on on getting our produce from this particular source? They're trying to bring all of those those marketing streams to the awareness of their consumers because the consumers want to know that. I know, for example, that um, uh, at that stage when we were developing the Cobbity Project, uh, Coles were working closely with World Wildlife Fund to ensure compliance around um, animal husbandry and, and, and uh, um, you know, that sort of thing. So, you know, the supermarket chains are, are looking to convey to their customers that their producers are very concerned and paying a lot of attention to um, animal welfare, the health of the products, the, the lack of chemicals and, and the sustainability um, in which they're grown. Uh, that sustainability includes the, you know, the uh, um, uh, growing produce close to where it's consumed because obviously that cuts down on food miles. It also includes not having effluents uh, coming out of agricultural systems and impacting on surrounding environments. So all of these things are of interest to the consumer and, and of interest to the retailers to, to inform their consumers about. And what's happening overseas with, um, with your company? Is there interest in overseas um, markets for this sort of product or are you, we behind the eight ball compared to overseas? Where are we up to? Look, there, there is interest. Um, we built a farm, a 1.3 hectare blue farm in the city of Hefei in China, which is uh, just inland from Shanghai. Um, that farm became close to completion last year. The pandemic has certainly uh, put a bit of a handbrake on what we're doing there at this stage. Um, and so the farm there is still operating, but it's struggling. And uh, we'd, we'd really want to get some expert help back in there um, to get that farm completed and to pass on the uh, the expertise and the experience for operating the system. But of course, we're, we're a little bit stymied in that regard just at the moment. China, of course, imports a lot of food, including from Australia, and they even tend to buy companies here and farms and then take all their produce back to China. Does this setup that you've done in China indicate that that's changing and that they are now looking at producing food in a peri-urban environment in China now? Well, well, China's a, a very interesting place. Um, we've been talking on on this show about how Australians say, give me local food. I, I want my food growing as close to home as possible. In China, uh, they say, don't give me any of this local stuff. I don't trust it. Give me foreign food. So it, it's, it's really quite opposite in that sense. Now, that's, because, that's not because they don't want to buy food grown in China. It's because they don't trust the way that food is grown in China. And so part of the, the I guess, the marketing proposition we bring to Blue Farms in China is that uh, it involves uh, foreign expertise, foreign um, uh, experience in growing the food according to a very high standard um, and according to certified organic standards. So that gives people a lot of confidence. It's also, uh, I guess, an IP risk mitigator for us because uh, even if people did work out how to, to copy our technology there uh, and, and it was being run by local people, the trust factor would be gone. 
So we feel really grateful to be able to uh, um, perhaps have learned some lessons from China and, and added our touch to it and, and now to be able to uh, perhaps reintroduce that, uh, that technology into China. But it's interesting, we, we've heard from earlier uh, episodes of AgriMinders that organic in Australia uh, can be a bit ho-hum because all food in Australia is produced safely. And all the, but yet in China, the word organic is almost, yeah, right, sort of attitude. You know, I mean, is it really organic? If you bought some organic food in Australia that had been produced organically in China, I think the average Australian would look pretty squinty-eyed at that and say, well, how organic really was that? So it's a, all an image thing. I mean, do you think that's going to be overcome by you taking your Australian expertise up to China? Well, what what you say is true, Chris. So you can walk into a high level, a high end supermarket in in Shanghai or Beijing, and there'll be certified organic product up on the top shelf. It'll be extremely expensive. It does get purchased, but uh, Chinese people buying that food would would be sceptical as well. That's why it's so critical in that market to have the the Australian experience and the foreign knowledge and experience involved with the project because that actually brings a high level of, of confidence and trust um, to the consumers of, the, of those products in China that it has been produced to, to a very high standard. But in a country where they will import milk from the north coast of New South Wales and pay $14 a litre for it, even though we've got Australians in China helping dairies produce the same milk up there, does it have to come from Australia or do you think they are coming around to the idea that we can bring that level of safety within China. I think they are coming around to that. And if you if you look at the most recent five-year plan put out by the Chinese government around agriculture, it really it really reads like a almost like a permaculture manual. It it, it really sets out um, an agenda for bringing a lot more sustainability into agriculture in China. You know the the productivity per farmer. Uh, in China at the moment is very, very low compared to other countries, yet the average age of the farmer uh, is in the 70s. And the young people certainly aren't going to uh, to follow in the footsteps of their parents. So there's no option in China other than to dramatically modernise the farming systems there. And they are also very, very aware of the sustainability issues. Um, and every Chinese person is aware of those sustainability issues of food production uh, in their own country. So it's not, it's not a lack of awareness. There's a lot of government push and support to bring foreign expertise uh, into China in the area of agriculture and to, to really learn how to improve their systems uh, of farming there. And I think naturally the, the consumer uh, will follow along with that over time. Um, but certainly, certainly what we found there was that as soon as people knew that foreign expertise was directly involved, that brought a, a high level of trust for people. From your general experience, what else is happening in peri-urban agriculture and what do you think needs to happen? Obviously, this concept is one concept, but what else are you working on that will improve the production of food close to the city centres? Well, I think uh, with with the blue farms that we've done to date, we've managed to tick a number of the boxes um, of the the principles that I first developed with Hogan back at uh, at Sydney University um, in my master's thesis. But we haven't had the opportunity to really develop every one of those principles. 
One of them that still needs further work is around the energy use in these systems. Protected cropping systems use quite a lot of energy because they tend to be heated through the winter months to optimise the, the capital expense that's gone into setting up the system. Now, if, if that heating is from um, a fossil fuel source, then obviously that's not great for the sustainability on, on that level. So Hogan and I have done some work with a, uh, a solar physicist in Germany, Jürgen Kleinwachter, uh, who's developed some really remarkable technology around that area. Um, one of the examples of, of Jürgen's technology is a system that goes up into the ceiling of a greenhouse that uh, extracts out some of the heat coming in from the sun while allowing the majority of the light to go onto the plants. And that heat can then be stored and used for, for heating the greenhouse as it's required. Um, now, that technology is still in its commercialization stage, but that would be a, a major breakthrough to, to really round off um, the sustainability of, of what we could do with the peri-urban system. But, but a lot of what you're doing and talking about here and a lot of the focus seems to be on feel-good things like, you know, not using fossil fuels and emissions and making it organic, none of which necessarily provide a, a real cost benefit to, far, to supermarkets or to consumers in, in buying this produce. I mean, they'll feel good about it, but is it, do you think that's enough to give this a big future or is this going to be, or is there a risk that this will just be another fad, people will feel good about it for a while and then we'll go back to more conventional means? I think it's far more than, than feel good. In this type of blue farming system, uh, you can go to very large scale and produce very, very efficiently. So you're getting all the benefits of the high-tech efficiency uh, through the protected cropping. So that makes the system very labor efficient. You're also um, getting a lot of benefits from the, the microbiology in the system. So a lot of ecosystem services, if you like, that you'd otherwise need a, a chemical for or, or, or some other way of, uh, of, of, you know, providing those services within your, your agricultural system. Um, so there are cost savings there. So you can produce food at about the same price point as non-organic, um, but it's an organically certified product, which means that the, the producer um, gets a price advantage with, with, the, uh, with the purchases. Andrew, just near Port Augusta in South Australia, there is a massive glass house being built down there called Sundrop when it's got that big tower producing energy um, from heat exchange, if you like, which holds the energy overnight and then recharges during the day. Huge project. Is anything of that sort of scale, can that be integrated into an aquaponic system so that you can, is that where your expansion is going to be or is it going to be multiples of the cobbity size operation? Absolutely. You can really take this to whatever scale that, uh, that makes sense in, in each situation. There really isn't an upper limit in scale. There are some projects um, that, uh, that we're looking at the moment that are really in the vicinity of, of 10 hectares, even up to 20 hectares, very big scale facilities um, that, that, you know, there's certainly a great market for that. Is there an economy of scale though? Is there somewhere where it's, it's got a sweet point so far? With protected cropping systems, so glasshouse-based systems, 
generally you need to look at one hectare and above to get your, your basic economies of scale. And then just depending on the crop, certainly um, tomato production, for example, in Australia, any new glass houses being built now for tomato production would be in the 10 to 20 hectare range and, and even larger. And in the US, there are there are certainly um, glasshouse um, facilities there that uh, are pushing the 100 hectare size. So um, you, you really can take these to, to quite large. Now, you're not going to necessarily do that in a peri-urban area, um, but you can still do quite sizable facilities within close reach of, of the urban areas. So, Andrew, you've, you've really done all the hard yards on getting this up and running. Do you see a, a, an expanding number of companies getting into this or is the expansion we're going to see globally and in Australia going to be largely from, from your company uh, as it grows its business? Well, I, I would imagine over time, Chris, it would be both. Um, to date, there are no other similar technologies here in Australia uh, and really not anything um, exactly like this globally that I'm aware of at this stage. Um, it's a huge potential market. So inevitably there will be other players down the track, um, but there's certainly uh, enormous scope for the technology that, that we've developed globally. Andrew, I, I guess in my being, a, I guess, a pragmatist too, you know, a lot of people's ideas about how you grow food in the city, uh, they're really off with the fairies. I mean, the fair income department is just not going to happen. You know, all these green walls and so on, you see, yeah, they look pretty and they plant herbs in them, but really, you know, no, that's never going to be a major provider of food. And we're certainly not going to see, you know, cows running around on artificial turf on the roof, you know, in a feedlot. It's just not going to happen in the fair income department. So, why do you think that this system of running a a, a, um, a blue farm type system on the outskirts is not going to be perceived along with that style of, of sort of um, pie in the sky type um, peri-urban agriculture? Well, there there is a fair bit of pie in the sky out there. I would agree with that around urban agriculture. I think we need to make the distinctions between um, urban agriculture, peri-urban agriculture, and agriculture in, in the city or the CBD. There, there are opportunities for all of those. What we've done with Blue Farms to date is look more at the peri-urban um, opportunity because you can go not far from a city. You, you might be 30, 40, 50 kilometres from the CBD, place a facility there and get a lot of advantages. Uh, you might be just down the road from the distribution centre um, look at some of the issues that farmers are currently having getting uh, people out to pick their crops. Um, whereas if you're located uh, close to the urban areas, uh, then you've got access to not only labour, but also to high-tech expertise. Uh, young people with, with great skills in these areas that perhaps want to still have an urban-based life. So there are, there are a lot of practical advantages. Now, having said that, I also believe there are opportunities closer into the city, you have to look at each case on its merits. Now, if you can, for example, uh, locate a rooftop farm, um, it, it might be, let's take the scenario of a large building with apartments and perhaps retail and restaurants and so forth on the, the lower floor, um, you could potentially locate an urban farm in that area. It might be a, a half hectare facility, for example. Um, you can produce a lot of food um, out of a, a, a smaller scale blue farm like that 
on a rooftop. Now, that's not going to work to market into wholesale markets because you you would just go another 20 kilometres further out and and do a bigger facility. But if you can retail uh, the produce directly into um, people's homes and into hospitality and so forth, so long as you you very carefully look at the numbers um, and the market and the marketing, um, there are opportunities in in that uh, more urbanised location. You also need to make the distinction between commercial uh, urban agriculture and non-commercial urban agriculture. There, there are opportunities in non-commercial urban agriculture as well. Um, a, a concept I'm, I'm developing at the moment um, is looking at um, suburban housing. Uh, you know, if you, if you take a helicopter ride over the suburbs, um, the houses are, are getting bigger, but the blocks are getting smaller. All you see is a sea of roofs. Um, I'm looking at a concept where we could put, um, replace a conventional roof with a glasshouse type structure and grow a serious amount of food um, on an urban block. Um, now, that's not going to be for everybody, but there are non-commercial opportunities, I think, uh, available as well. And, and certainly that's the case in, in, um, in places like China. When you say non-commercial, you mean people just doing it because they want to do it for altruistic reasons rather than because it's viable from a cost point of view? Well, well yes, we're seeing a real resurgence, resurgence in um, you know, backyard gardening and whatnot, but the amount of productivity you can achieve with that is, is really quite limited. So the output per, per hour of human labour that goes into that sort of system, it, it's a labour of love, isn't it? Whereas I believe it's possible to do very highly productive home-based systems of that sort that really produce quite serious amounts of food. So that's just another niche um, that we can look at um, in the future in, in, in terms of um, urban farming. And when I say it's non-commercial, that doesn't mean it doesn't uh, have a role to play within the overall economy because people producing food at home in a sustainable manner, uh, it still impacts overall on, on the economy and, and the sustainability of, of the economy. Well, Andrew, I think I said on in 2007 uh, in my sum up on, on New Inventors that this was really one of the exciting transformational in- inventions that you don't see come up all that often, you know, in the world of innovation and invention. And you've obviously kicked on with it, as have a number of things off that show, but this has been a standout, I think. Congratulations on the work you've done. I think you've not only done a lot of work commercially successfully, but you've also brought something that is critical in my view, particularly in Australia, which is uh, one of them, probably the second most urbanised country in the world after Singapore, as I understand it. So we are a country of lots of land, but a lot of crowded cities and people would love to be able to do more of their food production nearby. So more strength to your elbow. Well done, and thank you very much for being our AgriMinder today. Thanks, Chris, and great to catch up with you after all these years. I love it when a plan comes together. For me, to have watched Andrew's fledgling dream of a farm in a box being showcased on the New Inventors TV series 13 years ago, and then see that box become a 13-hectare self-contained herb and fish protein factory on the outskirts of Sydney is as exciting as it is important for our urbanised society. The ideal solution for peri-urban agriculture has been elusive as the land on the periphery of our cities becomes unprocurable for farming. 
And the cost of transport and the environmental cost of the tyranny of distance has become even greater. Agrimiter Andrew has undoubtedly been ahead of his time, but I would expect that he will see the fruits of his labours in his and my lifetime as the science of food and fibre production becomes more intensive and even more critical to our future. I'm Chris Russell, and join us again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by Chris Russell and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Produced by Jennifer Goggin, edited by Lindsay Green, and with sound production by Matt Nikolic.